Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock broadcast brought to you in association with Harbro, suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition. Uh, welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales podcast, and I have with me yet an old friend and uh, uh, who's who's been around in in a lot of guises, and uh, a lot of people will recognise uh, John Campbell uh, from Northumberland. John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, nice to speak to you, Andy. Yep. And as I said, a lot of people will recognise you, of course, because the name is synonymous with uh, with Thrunton, who uh, anybody who's been in the livestock world will recognise the name, of course, as Thrunton being uh, at, at the sharp end of the Charolais cattle world for for a lot of years. Uh, and John, tell us a little bit more about sort of how Thrunton got started, obviously, with, you, with your father, Colin. Yeah, um, well, I think it was in... My father used to run Ian Sucker Cow, which was an Angus bull. And he always forward thinking, saw the Charlotte breed and he bought a bull. And when he used the Charlotte bull, his growth rate and the money he got for his calf convinced him to move into Charlotte. Okay. He um, sold all the um, commercial cows to finance, starting the pedigree herd up. And I think that was in 1974, so okay, that was early nearly days. 50 years ago. Mm. Yep. And and that would that be we've had on this podcast we've chatted about the the origins of the Charolais and would that be Robertson's at the Snipe House when they had the the open day there because that's not far from you would that be uh, maybe where he first saw the Charolais? Well, he was using on a big scale. He saw them being used and, and obviously looking over the fence, mm. and they were movers and shakers, and um, he, he sort of did see that as well. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, and um, Northumberland originally, of course, as, as a lot of our overseas listeners will know, will be synonymous with the Shorthorn, and that's sort of the, the home of where the original Shorthorns came from. But then it became just as much a home of the Charolais, didn't it? There were a lot of suckler producers around your area, and uh, they all started using the Charolais, and, and I think that's what put to, put the Charolais on the map. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, Bobby Robinson was probably the guy that set it all off for a lot of the UK, really, and Scotland. Mm-hmm. He was a big producer, and and he did it very well. So, you, you, where would you, would your father end up picking up some pure cows? In would they just come as imports straight off the boat? No, he didn't. He was. It was just a bit after that. It was just um, he would he would buy down at Bingley Hall and stuff at them days, mm-hmm. and just here and there where he could get them. Really, okay. <clears throat> one of the first cows I remember he bought was a cow called Dunningswood Fabiola. Which was an exceptionally good cow, and our first son made four thousand, which went to John White and Midlock and John, the late John Cunningham Parkgate Stone in Scotland. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, of course, another na- the name that would have been there would have been some oppos of yours, I suppose, the Whites at Midlock again, being in early in those Charolais days. But built the herd up to uh, maybe at one time you probably have one of the biggest Charolais, pure Charolais herds in the country. I would have said, John. That's right. I mean, you know, we're now, <clears throat> me and my brother have split partnership, which we'll talk about later, but mm-hmm. at one time we ran over 500 head, or just under 500 head of Charlotte Capital. Wow. Okay, that's huge. Which was uh, a, a big scale, you know? Yeah. And that would all be on, on Thrunton. What sort of size is Thrunton? Would you take, I know you've got your own farm there now, but what sort of size would uh, Thrunton be across the way? It was six, uh, I'm still talking acres, it was 600 acre. Mm-hmm. And we took about 150 acre grass parks on our next door farm. Okay. So then, and then we got Rosebrook 26 years ago when we farmed together. So we're running, and then just under 1500 acre. Yeah. But uh, the Charolais, of course, would come in in the winter, I suppose, in those wet parts up there. But it's a fairly hard ground, John, isn't it? I mean, I know it's by the sea there, but. Oh, uh, 
Yeah, it's very hard, but the weight of the cows, they have to be really, to be fair, continental cattle, I think, do need looked after a bit more than your maybe native breeds and mm-hmm. a bit more upkeep. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're, they're all were, some cows were outwintered in the stubble with numbers got big, but the majority were indoors. Yeah, well, because you'd be selling bulls by that time when you get that sort of trade you're selling. I've seen you with 20 bulls at Perth before now in, 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 the, in one sale. I mean, you'd be selling, I don't know, you tell me how many bulls a year would you be selling because they've all got to be housed, haven't they? Oh, yeah, well, as was at the peak, we'll be selling 80 or 90 bulls for breeding mm-hmm. a year. And a lot were going off the farm, which was quite good. But again, the best ones tend to go. It was Sterling or Perth before that bull sales, which was a great shop window for us. Mm-hmm. Had to be a shop window. And of course, you'd take them in there and win, win some prizes as well. John, you'd be <laughs> too modest about it. You guys had some of the best bulls that were in there. And you'd have won Perth in the old market and Sterling a, a good number of times, I'd say. Um, I think the, well, I think off the top of my head, my brother sort of specialised more. I think we won the groups of three nine, mm-hmm. and I think he's had eight supreme champions. I'm mm-hmm. sure that's right with uh-huh. the Charles. That's some going. That's some going, and some fairly hefty prices going along with that as well. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not just about the one big price though. It's about the the averages when you're taking that number of bulls, isn't it? Yeah, it's the average. It's nice to get the icing on the kit, but at the end of the day, it's the average. It counts, and we've had some very good days in Perth and Sterling, mm-hmm. which makes all your hard work work worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Can you mm-hmm. name Can you name a bull that you bred that you thought was a good one, the, the best one maybe? I know. remember you getting one up in the 40,000 yeah. or something at one time at some stage. Yeah. Well, there was a, we've had a few big prices, but the one that springs to mind was Thrunton Voldemort. He was uh, 55,000. And Charlie Bowden and Esma Evans bought them. Okay. And again, Charlie's first son of, of that um, sportsman, Columba, made 55,000 as well. Okay. But um, the one that sticks in my mind, which I particularly like, was a favourite, was um, Thrunton Fearless. Mm-hmm. And it went to Mike Massey at, at, um, up in Aberdeenshire. Yeah. It was just when figures came in and the bull had poorer figures. He made 16, which is still a good price, but he would have made a lot more if the figures hadn't been against him. And we'll maybe talk about figures in a second, John, because obviously you've been involved in, in the sheep side of it as well. And it, it, it did change the job when people were looking for figures and, and, and various health status and all those sorts of things. So you, you've seen a huge change in the in the Shirley market and the commercial man's uh, um, buying habits as well, looking for these figures. And it makes the, yeah. job, makes the job a lot harder, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I think... The old stockmen probably still do and always will use the eye, but the younger modern farm manager, younger sons going through, probably researched them all online before they even get a catalogue and, and look and they're looking for easy carving. Mm-hmm. I think the trend recently has gone away a little bit from that. Um, but for a time, the shallow breed did get, well, known for more difficult carving and the breed had to change the from as much bone and power, and I think the breed and all the breeds have done a good job in that. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly, it's been a, it's been a hard, a tough move for some of the herds who, who sort of ignored them for all that. I wouldn't say ignored them, but had a big enough trade without actually having to to, to rely on the figures. All of a sudden, when they want figures, the the job just changed. They said the same the same with the sheep, and, and and you'll have bought some bulls, and obviously trying to get those figures back. But you'll also bought in you'll have bought in a lot of stock bulls over the years. Is there anything there that you can say <laughs> that actually did a huge influence within within the Thrunton herd over those years, or more than one bull probably? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right, Andy. Probably the the one, the first one we it, it stood out was Newtrum's Regal. Okay, yeah. We saw him at the Highland Show. He he bred something. He put the I would say the foundation of the herd with the females on the map, no doubt about it. 
He was a great female breeder. There was lots of bulls, but the other one that stood out, uh, too, from my mind, was Mowbray Parker Lander from okay. Mike Atkinson. Yeah. He was Perth champion. And he, he was 25,000 when we purchased them, and he, again, bred some great cows. And a lot of his cows, actually, the sons of him, her um, bulls, bred Perth champions for us. But I think the one that was the icing on the cake was Burrowed and Talisman. Um, and he was Carlisle champion when we bought them. Mm-hmm. We don't just buy champions, we buy the bulls we like. And he was used over 200 herds in the UK with over 1,000 progeny in the herd book. Okay. And right. we had a lot of semen sales abroad as well. He was probably, without doubt, the most influential bull we used. Yep. And financially successful as well, by the sound of it. And uh, uh, as you say, breeding females, of course, that's what building a herd is about. Is about you've got to find the bull to breed the females, and the males, the males will arrive on their own eventually if you get to, if you get the cow that breeds puts those females in your herd. Haven't you? Yeah, that's right. You know as well as me in, in the livestock world, you've got to have the females, whether it's sheep, cattle, horses. Mm-hmm. If the females are right, <clears throat> the males follow. Um, yeah. It's easy saying that, but. You've got to be always looking for the like jigsaw puzzle, that little bit just to click to get it right. But but also but, um, also John, when you're selling or or, or you're in the, in the in the space of selling uh, 80, 70, 80 bulls a year, you've also got that gives you seventy eighty females to sell a year. So you will have a trade. I assume unless you keep growing, you'll have a trade for females as well. And and where does that come from? You'd sell a few. You would have sold a few of those at home then back in the day. Yeah, we sold, obviously the bot men was slaughtered, and we would keep our pick and the rest will be sold either privately or again Carlisle occasionally and Sterling. It's so a, that was the, the, the foundation. Yeah. It's a tough one, isn't it, to to um to sell sell some good ones all the time, but I guess some of these times there are new people coming into the breed and they'll come with the reputation that you had, they'll come knocking at the door and taking taking a handful of a draft of the best at one time. Yeah, it's, it's, we were never tempted really to sell the best ones because we thought Short, you know, look, it's short term. If you look long term to the future, I think you've got to keep them stock cows uh-huh. and them good females if possible, in our opinion, you know. Okay. Jobs changed a little bit now, John, of course, with the, with the advent of flushing. And I don't suppose you'd be into the ET and flushing in the early days, maybe later on, but that the job has changed because you can get four or five females exactly the same way bred. And that does give you the opportunity to, to sell a couple and maybe, yeah. maybe not always the best ones that do breed. No, no, it's, it's knowing your cows. And, I mean, we have, me and my brother both have a, um, we flushed, luckily before Fucking Mouth came in the UK the last time, we flushed a lot of our best cows and we've still got embryos frozen as a rainy day for insurance policy. <laughs> but we didn't do a lot of flushing with the numbers we had. Um, it, and yeah, I agree with what you're saying, it's more so in the sheep world now. <laughs> it's allowed to keep them half a dozen, 10 ewes and um, just flushing and same as some cows and being very successful at it. Mm-hmm. It is. It's and and uh, hey, we can have a conversation about that as we have done on this podcast a good few times about whether that's right or wrong. I think at the end of the day, it's financially right for people. Let's go on to the sheep, John, because I mean, you you would have had Suffolk there for, as a youngster. I would think I mean, there'd always been Suffolk sheep at at um, yeah. at Thrunton for a long time. That's right. When well, it was funny when we go back. It's going back. It was my eleven plus at school. Mm-hmm. And it was the day my exams and father went off to Edinburgh and didn't tell me and bought five Suffolk ewes. Okay. That was in 1975, which we started to flock from. Um, and really, we've concentrated on the shearling job at Kelso Ram sales nearly all our time in that. 
I did dabble in Edinburgh and I've been down that route like you were talking before about flushing embryos. But you've got to be on the ball. It's all or nothing. If you hit the top, it's great. And if you don't, you're, you're not making much money. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's attention to detail with that job. You've really got to be 24-7, eat, live and sleep them sheep or bulls you bring out, you know? And you're talking... It's not for everybody. You're talking in those days, John, of course, when you'd be flushing that... Uh, oh, in the Suffolk's and in, in the Sharp End, you say you're going to Edinburgh, that would have been the days when the Muras boys and, and uh, John Sinnott and these lads are just chasing that, those big prices at the top end, aren't they? And, and uh, you've got to keep an eye on the commercial end of that as well, and, and it's almost two different types of sheep, aren't they? I would agree, Andy, and it still probably is, and um, a bit like that, and... Um, you're right, it's Senate, your mayors. These guys were very good at what they did, but we ran 800 cross use in end days, mm-hmm. and our eyes were always on easy flesh and rams that would do a good job, and customers at Kelso who would come back every year. Mm-hmm. So that was, that's the route we took, you know. More than is a realistic and um, sensible uh, sort of line, really. And you put in shearling, shearling rams into Kelso in, in reasonable numbers there, of course, in, in those big marquees, you'd be uh, you'd be getting the top trade with those two? Yeah, there was, um, we, we used to take about 30 to 40 every year. Mm-hmm. And, and these last, well, the last 10 years, the Suffolk's not as fashionable as everybody else knows, the Bell Tex, Texels come in. Then it's, I think there's getting a revival again now. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of ground being lost, and we've cut the ewes back from was 100 now to about 50 pedigree ewes. Mm-hmm. Well, go down, go down that route to where you are just now, John. As you said, I mean, I, I, I've known you for 30 odd years, 30, 40 years, oh. John, and, and um, That's you, right. you've always been, I would say, you're the sheep man side of that, of that partnership. Your sheep was, more, was maybe more your interest or more your, your, um, your skill set, if you like, than, than the cattle side of it. And, yeah. and, and then when you took over Roseborough, which should be, did you say 26 years ago or something? Remember you going there? 26 like years ago. Remember you going there like it was That's yesterday. Right. And, and you would have then t- t- had a lot more of the sheep, control of the sheep on, on, in the partnership then on, on, on your side. That's right. To be fair, my brother is eats, lives, and still does um, pedigree cattle, and he's very good at it. And I was more the sheep man, mm-hmm. and still, it still am. Um, so you know, yeah, we're now at Rosebrook, which is um, seven hundred and fifty acre, which we run about eight hundred ewes, and I've gone all because of the partnership. I've had very few people coming looking for bulls, so I've moved into commercial Aberdeen Angus cows, and we run 90 of them, okay. all good, the Angus bull. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll just step back a little bit. As I said, I've known you a long time, and of course, the, as with many people on this podcast, our friendships stem back for 30, 40 years, because we're all down at that uh, that great big building down in the middle of London called Smithfield back in the back in the, in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and uh, yeah. I, I knew you, John, because you had the same passion for the fat lambs as a few people have been on here, and uh, that I had for the for the fat cattle, and you got into that job and went went into it uh, hook line and sinker, didn't you? Into the into the winning Smithfield. Yeah. Well, it was a, again. We were building up a herd. Um, my father had two sons, two daughters, and we were new in the pedigree world. We thought it was a great advert. If you win Smithfield in them days, you were hitting national, probably partly across the world. So sure. we aimed for Smithfield, and we had, as you well know, Andy, some of the best. Um, days of my showing life without a doubt were in Earl's Court. It's mm-hmm. difficult to explain how electric the atmosphere was. The conditions were perfect to bring out lambs and cattle. 
and it was anybody involved with stock, it was a dream to, to win that. That was the, the, the ultimate goal, really. And you'd have gone down there as a boy, John, the same as I did, and, and, and seen some of the masters upstairs and yeah. downstairs. And uh, who were the men to learn from back then that would have, would have inspired you? Well, the, the man, when I first it was, when I went down, um, was 1985, was Jack Bulmer. If you were beating Jack Bulmer, you were winning. Mm-hmm. He was the master at Smithfield in his time. He was Suffolk man through and through. Then probably along came um, Alec Brown, who I think mm-hmm. put Texels on the map in the, in the prime stock world. Mm-hmm. Robin Slade, another name. You, he was the Dutch ones. And latterly the Halls. But there was lots of other people, but they were the three main or four main people stood out in my mind, yeah. And, and John, um, um, of course, Jack Bormer would have a brother, Richard Bormer, as well. And I think they were both being Suffolk's, weren't they? And they were in the early days of Suffolk. So some good, good clean commercial Suffolk sheep that they had, didn't they? That's right. They were they were sort of the um, leading lights on that side. I mean, um, yeah, Richard was equally as formidable, formidable as Jack, um, but Jack was more of a showman than Richard was. I learned mm-hmm. for the first two years, I went down to the Yorkshire Shoney's wagon and tipped my whiskey out and listened and learned a lot of tips about dipping, mm-hmm. shears, and all the tricks of the trade that you don't get at college, you know? So that sure. was one of the idols I had who in, in, well, really inspired me, you know? And you went on to do well, John. Of course, uh, um, can't remember when, when you did win it, but I know you you eventually pulled that uh, you pulled the silverware yeah. out there. I remember you, you meeting the meeting the Queen Mother and, and, Queen and winning Mother, it. Yeah. That year. What year was that, John? Um, well, the first time I won it was with North Country Achievers. That would be the last time they ever got. And to be fair, they probably will never win again for the way things have moved. That was 1985 on my second attempt. Wow. Then I won it again. With I did the double with um, champion and reserve in 300 years of the history of the club. It's only been done three times. Once mm. by Jack Bulmer, once myself, and I can't remember the other person who who did it. But it was that was a great day and a great party, as you well know, Andy. We had some <laughs> great kiss parties in Earl's Court, and they were legendary. Yeah. They were legendary upstairs and downstairs and wherever you were, yeah. really, and they yeah. were tremendous. And, and then we all had a lot to celebrate, and even if we didn't, as my father said, win or lose, we'd have some booze. It was always a it was a great yeah. week, wasn't it? And I love that. And if I just move on to the other side of the Smithfield, John, you're one of the few people that I have chatted to who was involved in Smithfield in the same way that I was. And I mean, I, I think I first went onto the council in Smithfield in 92, I think, and uh, you yeah. were already be involved in that then, and you went on to be chief uh, sheep steward, and you still are involved in Smithfield. So let's just go still back on. to a little bit. Right. Go back to a little bit of sort of how the how the hierarchy worked and how difficult it was really to run that uh, that Smithfield show. It wasn't an easy task, was it? Oh no! When a lot of people were very critical who who looked from the outside, but you got to remember, by the secretary, we were all the voluntary people doing it, and it was probably the best steward show you ever went to. It was done mm. immaculately. The royal family was there, but no, we had lots of meetings behind the scene, travelling down to London, planning. We took on board what people said to get the weights right, we had to move with the times. And basically, cut a long story short, the the cost of exhibiting, and the first people I remember who pulled out were John Deere, mm-hmm. and at that time it was 250000 for their stand. Yeah, and yeah. they looked to think, we will do field demonstrations, we will go elsewhere. And I, I don't blame them. It was like a pack of cards they pulled out, Matthew mm-hmm. Ferguson, Ford, New Holland, whatever. And it was... Really, it was the beginning of the end, in a way, and it was the logistics of getting them huge machines into London, which really, sadly, 
started to see the decline of it. Yeah, it, it did. And, and in our defence, John, because I was on, on council the same as you were when the show did finish, and obviously it went to its biannual year, and uh, yeah. they, they hoped that that would save it. But it wasn't the, the, the livestock side of it is run was run by the Royal Smithfield Club, and we only really were involved in the livestock side of it. The Royal Smithfield show itself was a separate entity that we had no at that time anyway no feed into whatsoever. So uh, they would no. and and our hand were tied by what they said, weren't they? Yeah, the EE of Agricultural Engineers, were, yeah, you're right. They were the guys that run it, and they had the numbers coming in, and we were the livestock side. But like I said, going back, when the machinery guys start pulling out and looking at different ways of um, selling their work, call it, it really all began to, to, to fold. And yeah, give the club 100%. We tried Bath and West. We've been everywhere to try and keep the going, the show as much as possible, because so many people had so many great days, but it's it, unfortunately it's it's um, we're down to now just a few. I think six of us left in the committee, which I'm luckily one of them, and still enjoy being involved. Mm. But we're trying to do a few carcass, you know, um, live dead competitions, but it's very difficult because we've had blue tongue. If you look back, foot and mouth, there was lots of things that it hit the show financially in 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 a bad way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, and it, it, it is a shame to see it go that way. But as you said, you do, you do still try and, and, and get involved and keep uh, and keep the remnants of that going. And, and the cups still go round to the various events, don't they? And uh, a fantastic, right. fantastic set of cups that they all they all are. Oh, and uh, yeah. And John, if we move on to, as I said, you moved to Roseborough and, and then more recently, uh, while well, you were involved in breeding and selling tups, I know one time you were knocking out not just uh, the Suffolk's but tups of, tups of all sorts into yeah. into Kelso in fairly big numbers and. Uh, you, as you mentioned earlier on, you've you've had a change, of, a, a split with the partnership with your brother, and and uh, and things have changed. And uh, if I just mention where Roseborough is, you're on the side of the A1, just outside of Annick. Is that right? Just just north That's of Annick, or south of Annick, yeah. yeah, in in Walton country, if I remember right. Along with a, there's a few. You've got a few Waltons in your neighbourhood, haven't you? The them. That's the right. Yeah. Well, yeah. My, actually, my my dad and Mrs. Walton were cousins, so we're, okay. we're sort of family connected. Yeah. There. But no, we, uh, we moved down to Rosebrough, as we're saying, 26 years ago. And at that time, I have one son and two daughters, and he travelled off to um, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, he's put a lot of input into the farm now. He looked at New Zealand, I think, ahead of his time and, and ahead of us. How do we survive without subsidies? What's going to happen? And New Zealand's have been all through what we're going through now. And he came back and he thought... He's not as passionate as I am about the pedigree side. So we, as I mentioned, we went all black cows. We still run Suffolk's Texel Beltex. Um, but we, we sort of, this four years ago, he decided to start a hog growth business up. Okay. And that's taken off. Um, again, we keep a few of our own pigs, but it's just outstripped the numbers. So we buy a lot of pigs in now for it. Um, and, and actually today, I've just come back from Anna Castle doing a hog growth in the summer holidays. <laughs> the next move was to um, open a, a shop. We bought a shop in Sea Houses, which is a seaside sort of village. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we do all our own ready meals. My wife, um, who was working in the prison service, gave up a job and she works full time, being employed by my son, which is quite unique and different in a family. <laughs> is he a taskmaster? Um, <laughs> that's right, a taskmaster. But you know, you've got to move the times on. And I'm a great believer, like my father did with me, and letting the young ones mm-hmm. pick take ahead and, and look to the future as we say you and me well know as you get older things pass you and different ideas 
Mm. Um, and it's, it's quite unique. I would have never would have said this going back to your Smithfield is we're actually run a herd of Dexter cows now <laughs> just simply for the for the shop. Okay. We run 13 and we try and have one beast a month if possible mm. going through the butcher shop. And okay. the reason we went to Dexter was if you look at your big supermarkets they've got Angus, Shorthorns, Herefords tied up now. We thought we had to be different as a small producer and we mm. thought Dexter's although probably the only breed of cattle that man hasn't interfered with and has still got the marbling, but they do take about two-year-old to be mature. That's okay. the downside. Mm-hmm. But fed on no concentrate, and it was just something different, really. We had to be different as a small producer. Do you market that as Dexter beef, John? Or does your son do that? Dexter beef. No, mm-hmm. yeah, we have marked that as Dexter beef through the, you know, we have a cold room and a butchery on the farm, mm-hmm. um, and we, we do all, well, a lot of the, the meat comes back now it's not traditionally like you used to hang a carcass. It comes back in vacuum pack, and it's 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 really hung that way. If you call it hung, it's kept in bags and okay. kept for twenty eight days before we sell it. Yeah, sure. And you're obviously getting a repeat business through through the shop. Although having said that, as you said, it is a tourist area there, so you'll have a bit of a pull from that that Anak coast there. And I know he has this quite well, and it is a, it is a pretty part of the world. You've got a lot of tourists coming through. I guess that'll be the summer will be your main trade. That's correct. The, the winter's steady away like any, anywhere, but the, we're trying to capitalise on the summer and the summer trade, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like two years ago, um, it was, couldn't have got a better time to start a shop. People weren't on holiday, they couldn't travel with COVID, they had money in the pockets. This year, with the recession, as you well know, and the way the world's mm-hmm. changed, people are a bit more reluctant at the minute, and it's a harder t- um task at the minute to sell meat than it was two years, even a year ago. It's, it's amazing how it's changed. And your son, just remind me his name? Uh... Ed, we call him Ed. He's Ed, Ed, but he's Ed. known as Ed. So really, I made him a 51% partner in the farm. Um, he really is running and making most of the decisions, and I'm the lad and do as I'm told. <laughs> but he's passionate about business, not so much in the livestock, but more in the financial and the, 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 the whole outlook of farming, you know? Okay, and has he, as some of our, again, um, podcast guests we've had on here have gone down the route of the internet, and of course that's a massive tool for all of us, has he gone down that route of selling Dexter box beef through through the internet yet, is that a thing? He he, he thought about it, but he, he thought we'd just concentrate first in the shop, um, you, you, you could do that, um, I mean he's always come up with new ideas what to do, but that that is a, an avenue we, we could go, but and even sell at the restaurants, but the minute we're quite happy just to, like anything new, plod away and, and build slowly, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And the Angus cattle there, are you selling, what are you putting the charley on those and then putting them away as, as, as calves, John? No, no, we're using Angus onto Angus, and the idea is to, because we're very high level, level one, you and he's BVD accredited and all the rest of it. So we've got a closed herd, and we just keep the best heifers and sell the rest, um, as forward stores at the minute, with, you know, the, the store traders. You have to remember the farmer at na- farmer at, I'm at now isn't, it's more of a marginal farm. It hasn't as much, we only grow 40 acre variable, so we tend to sell as forward stores, suit our system better. Sorry, Andy, one thing I will say, that's we've noticed, Ian having them not knocking continentals, but when you go into native cattle, there's less stuff about, they are, no doubt about it, you can, you can get called a lazy farmer, you can lie in bed and they will cough away themselves much easier, you know. As we get older, John, those hours of sleep are more precious to us than they were when we were younger. Eh? <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> well, John, it sounds like it is all changed there at uh, Roseburg, and that's uh, so yeah. since your early days. But it's been a been a pleasure to hear about those say, those early days at Thrunton, which I think a lot of people will will remember you for, and just how 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 times changed there, John. And I know I go up, often go up and down the A1, and I put the horn when I go past your gate. And yeah. one of the days, one of the well, I've been in the state a few times. You've always been a great host, but one of the days, uh, my wife and I will drop in yeah. and see you when we go through there. Well, I wish you luck with the, with the farm shop. What's the name of the farm shop and see houses just so people can look out for it's, it? It's, we trade as a rolling pig. That's what we do with the hog roast and the shop, the rolling, the rolling. pig. And the hog roast, you yeah. said you were doing one on the weekend. So is that something you, that you, you get your, do you have to get your penny on to do that, do you? I do. And I would have never thought going back, I would ever be doing what I'm doing now. But I've been in Anna Castle this last week. And it's actually nice to get off the farm because, you know, farming, mental health and all the rest of it is a problem in the industry. And it's quite nice to talk to people who are all on holiday and enjoy spending money with you, which is always nice to <laughs> and people from all over the world, diff- different views. It's a, it's, it doesn't do any harm to change, you know. Nice to sell something to to somebody who yeah. doesn't want to haggle, doesn't thing, want to haggle for the price. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> one thing I will say, like Andy, I've learned in life: if your business stands still, you're actually going backwards. You've yeah, got to keep ahead. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Other mm-hmm. people are passing you, and there's a lot of people out there. So mm-hmm. you've always got to be looking forward. And I think my son's taking that to the next level, which is he's the fifth generation of farmers of Campbell's to be um, family farming in our family. So. It's, mm-hmm. And he just had a son, so hopefully number six is on the way. You know, let's hope so. Excellent, John. Well, congratulations that on on having a having a grandchild. I haven't got any of those yet, but that's fantastic to hear that the yeah. camels are still going on. And I think, and your brother's side, your brother's still farm strengthen, of course, and uh, he's got quite a big family there as well, hasn't he? He's got sons that's in the right. business too. Yeah, he has two sons at home, and they're, they're dedicated to the, the, the pedigree world. Charles and Angus more recently, so mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're going very well, which is great to see. You know. Good, good to see that. Good to see that side of it and your side of it doing really well. Well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a, a while since we did catch up briefly at the Highland, but it's been a while since we've had a, a dram together. But uh, yeah. really enjoyed your company, and uh, it's great to hear your story and how things are going on. Yeah, well, thanks, Andy. We'll look forward to our next dram. All right, All cheers, right. John. Cheers, John. Thank All you. Best. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, John. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales and kindly sponsored as always by uh, Harbro suppliers and manufacturers of quality livestock nutrition and why not let them help you get on top of your cost of production. They can offer a, a free no obligation review of your current production systems and uh, that's well worth every free penny of it. So uh, get in touch with Harbro through their website or through social media and other, other usual channels. And whilst you're on social media, don't forget to look up Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll where you'll see plenty of photographs and information regarding this and other episodes. <laughs>